0: The last time we were together would have been December 18th, so it's been almost a month. We started chapter 8 in, in, and so we're gonna need some review, so I'm thinking we're gonna start the book over. We'll go back to 1 Corinthians 1. I'm kidding. We will probably go back towards the beginning of chapter 8 though and kinda of get the context of, of the idea that Paul has here to not subject others to your liberty. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for your word this morning and your son and your Holy Spirit. There is absolutely nothing, no rock left unturned that you have to uh, provide for us the ability to serve you and to love you. You give us everything we need and uh, we need but appropriated. So this morning, as we look through your word and and thank you for it, I pray that you would give us um, the ability to submit to it so that where you you show us we need change, we would indeed change. And it would be a a glory to you and a glory to your son. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm a little bit hoarse from shouting at the snow this morning while I was shoveling it. Go away! Didn't work. Snow, snow, go away. I guess that, that rhyme only works with rain, huh? Didn't work with the snow. Pardon? It doesn't work with rain? Okay, that explains my inability to get rid of the rain, too. So... Let's take a a moment to read through chapter 8 and um, find out what Paul is telling us about being careful with our liberty. Do we have liberty in Christ? We can do what he allows us to do, but should we always? And that's what Paul deals with in this. And and it takes wisdom to know how to take care with your liberty. Now, concerning things in verse 1 of chapter 8, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Love builds up. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have the knowledge, this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. But take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose Christ's sake died, and thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. And a lot of analogies come to mind here. We'll probably deal with them as we get to them. But again, as we talked about earlier, chapter 8, in some ways, too, the mature Christian seems almost silly. You know, the answer pops to mind. Um, these temple meals, sometimes, though, we're like we talked about the only way that a poor Christian might get an actual meal, something other than porridge as, as one of the... Um, We talked about one of the commentators said "Um, the the usual attic dinner consisted of two courses, the first a kind of porridge and the second a kind of porridge. So there was quite a bit of non variety there. So the chapter starts out with Paul's statement that he is again dealing with something that the Corinthians wrote to him about. You asked me about idols. You asked me about it. I'm going to give you an answer. So he talks about. The fa- we, we discover that the, the Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic. They had, go- they had gods for everything. They had gods of war, travel, uh, I mean today it would be like having gods of TV and gods of, of, of Netflix and gods of whatever you're doing. There'd be gods for everything that you would have to sacrifice and pray to. And then that, that was verse one. We all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogance, but love edifies. Verse two. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known. He has not yet known as he ought to know. And we all know people who know it all, who've been there, done that. And we know how we feel when we're around them. Very difficult thing. But verse 3 says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He is known by him. So consequently, one man said, the man who loves God is the one who rightly can solve the question about food offered to idols. What effect will his partaking of it have on his fellow Christians? Progress or holiness? Progress and hol- What effect will his partaking have on his fellow Christians' progress in holiness? Which is something we should be concerned about. How are we affecting those around us? Not so that it becomes a stumbling block or a millstone around our neck, but just taking care that we are, we know where the people we're with are spiritually, so that we can be a help to them and not a hindrance, not a- So for example, I, if, if I thought, if, if God moved me by His Word to minister, to, to, to do something necessary in the bar, say, and I had to go in there to, to extract somebody from it or to, or, or to meet with somebody or whatever, I'm not gonna drink. It would, it would not be a big deal to me. But a younger Christian might see me in that bar. And what's the first thing they're gonna think? He's drinking again. Well, it's been like, Forty year, 35 years since I've even touched the stuff. Um, oh, I take that back. I have had beer-battered um, cod once. Yeah. Does that count? Oh, man. How many penances do I have to do? Anyway, so it may not be a problem for me, but it might be to a younger Christian who would see me there and wonder, what is he doing in a bar? Why is he in a bar? Maybe I'm doing CPR on somebody, but he can't see it. Anyway. So that's what—that's one of the concept that Paul is going to be working through here. So therefore, concerning eating things like sacrificed to idols, he says that you, we, you, you mature Christians, you—we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no god but one. There's only one god. There are demons, and Paul talks about demons, but there's only one god, expressed in three persons. Period. That's it. Not the five thousand or how many like the Hindus have thirty thousand gods or. I mean, I'd be sacrificing all day long every day. What else could you do? So, therefore, concerning those things, though, he said, Paul says, we know that there's no such thing as an idol. The Corinthians were boastfully aware that they knew there was no such thing as an idol and that there was only one God. Paul acknowledges that and he reminds us here, yes, there's only one God. Metaphorically, in other places such as Psalm 82, Exodus 21, 6, and Exodus four sixteen, Exodus 7, 1, the word small g, gods, is ascribed to other things, including men. These are only forms of speech. The uniform testimony of Scripture, as the Corinthians, the arrogant Corinthians well knew, was that there was one God, expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this context, Paul is asserting, reminding, agreeing with the Corinthians that idols are not gods, um, and that the eating of things sacrificed to idols really has no effect. But a young Christian may not know that. How do you deal with that? How do you bring them along? How do you educate? How do you um, help them understand from Scripture the sovereignty of God in this area? So then Paul says in verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, the pagan Greeks, as we mentioned before, had many gods. And Paul acknowledges this. There's no true God but one. Nevertheless, men in their wickedness acknowledge a demon behind every rock as a god. About a year or two before writing this epistle, Paul was embarked on his third missionary journey, and he had a run-in with Demetrius over false gods. And we talked about that, Acts chapter 19. Um, about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way, in verse 23, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. There you have it. It was a business proposition. Those, he, these, he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades, and said, "Men." You know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, in almost all of Asia, that was probably a little bit of hyperbole, but anyway, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there, not only is there danger that these gods might not be worshiped, no, that's not what he says. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. And that's where he gets into the God part. That she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So, they've got a false goddess, but she's making them a lot of money. Prayer handkerchiefs and little silver idols and Artemis bobbleheads to put on their chariot dash, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I'll try not to do that while I'm talking. Clearly, Paul did not believe that these demons were actually gods, but he was willing to acknowledge that pagans thought they were. His use of the phrase, so-called gods, so-called gods, shows his disdain for these false gods, and yet he acknowledges that some believe in them. And then verse 6, for us, yet for us, Paul says, for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord. Jesus Christ, by whom all are things, and we exist through Him, and we talked about this being a form of the Shema. Uh, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, in Deuteronomy 6 chapter 4, uh, verse, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elonahio Adonai Echad. I've listened to him say it, and I can't quite imitate him. but when they, when they say the CH, you really have to get guttural. Echad. And I spit on people when I do that, so I make sure that, that they're quite a distance away if I'm going to copy it. Here, Israel. This is the Jewish Shema, Shema. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. It's important to note as well that Paul emphasized here that God does not exist for us. We exist for him. He is not our cosmic bellhop. All things were created by the Lord Jesus and we exist through him. There is only way, to, one way to come to the Father. And that is through the Son, and He is Lord. This is a clear, to me, this is a clear teaching, another stamp on the the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So the very eating of the food, in the very eating of it, they're wincing. I'm eating, why are they eating it? Because they saw an older, a, a more mature brother in an idol, in a temple, eating of it. And, and remember, that's part of what goes on here. It's not just the eating of the food. It was going into the temple and partaking of it there. So the, the mature Christian, it's just food. It's actually pretty good food. This is tenderloin. I like this. It's not, you know, there's, he's not even thinking about the idol, the aspect of the danger that he's put the heart of an of a immature Christian in. So many of the new concert, converts to Christian, Christianity, having been exposed to proper theological teaching, would know that there was only one right God, but they may not have divested themselves of the idea of the other false gods, and so they did not know that there was really only one true God, one real God. It's an exec an exec- this is a good example of progressive sanctification. When you were when you trusted Christ by his sovereignty and his grace, did you immediately become a a four-point Greek theologian, understanding all of the doctrines of, of salvation, all of the doctrines of eschatology, etc cetera, etc cetera. of course not. but you became really excited about learning them didn't you? This is a delight now and and that's that's what happens is not everybody is where you are, but you have to understand that without an arrogance, without um, a pride in that because we were all saved by grace and we were all at one point brand new, excited, Google-eyed about what was going on in our lives, wondering about what was coming, learning about this book and about all the truth and all the wonders that are in it. Slowly but surely, God builds them into our lives as they are needed, as they are needed. So, as we become more and more immersed in the Word of God, you learn more and more of God and our false previous ideas begin to be corrected one by one or maybe more than one at a time. But when Paul says that their conscience is weak, he's not, he's, he's simply noting that they have been under paganism so long, it will take time for them to get to the point of knowledge and the point of the knowledge of the more theologically sound Corinthians. Well, I know there's no God, you idiot. I mean, there's no false God, you idiot. There's only one God. And we may not say that, but that may be how we come across. My wife has often said, why are you yelling? And I'm talking about this volume. Does that sound like I'm yelling? But she's reading my body language. This, this doesn't happen very much anymore. It used to happen years ago, by God's grace. Anyway, she goes, go, why are you yelling at me? I'd say, I could probably get a decibel mute. she says, I don't want to know about the decibel meter. You're yelling at me. It was my attitude. And that's what was coming across here. They've been so accustomed to regard an idol as reality that they can't get rid of the feeling that eating food, which has been offered to them, they're taking part in the worship of the heathen gods. And they cannot eat. They cannot. Consequently, when the example of another Christian encourages them to eat meat of this kind, they do what they feel to be wrong. Missionaries, uh, one commentator noted that missionaries at the present day have similar experiences. A belief in witchcraft long continues to lurk in otherwise well-instructed Christians and, against their reason and their conscience, they allow themselves to be influenced by it. Sometimes it takes a long time to divest ourselves or others of false theology of false ideas. Patience is is warranted there. In this statement, Paul is beginning to instruct the Corinthians how to care for one another, especially a brother who is not as far advanced in understanding theology. If the weaker brother were to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, it would bring confusion and guilt. It would. It just would. Get over it, mature Christian. That's what's going to happen to him. The stronger Christian should never do this to a weaker brother. Just because we know something is acceptable does not mean that we should force it on someone who isn't prepared to accept it yet. I'm not talking about uh, central doctrinal themes here, but rather the periphery and such things as Paul's talking about here, the eating of meats and things like that. So then Paul says this. He says, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. So apparently the... Stronger Christians, I don't know, maybe have been taunting the weaker Corinthians about this in keeping with their stupid ideas about being more spiritual in marriage if they didn't consummate the marriage and some of the other dumb ideas that, and, and see there I am. What am I doing? Those dumb, immature. Well that was a really good example. I did that on purpose so that you could see the example and understand exactly what not to do. One of these days, my, I've told you before, my headstone's gonna say, he was a growing Christian, but he ran out of time. Corinthians, the Corinthians were forcing others to eat this by going in, they didn't think they were, but they were setting an example. They needed to be careful. This is a very specific area, but they needed to be careful about what they were doing. So then we, we, that's actually, I believe verse 8 is where we finished. Paul acknowledges that doing things that God has not forbidden does not necessarily have any bearing on a relationship to him. And food is a good example of this. It should be pointed out that this does not in any way negate what happened in Acts chapter 15, by the way, when the apostles allowed the Gentiles there not to eat meat offered to idols. They would have simply been applying this very principle that those who were weak and struggled with the concept of eating meat that was offered to an idol in a temple were not required to eat that meat. At that time, in that place, the apostles allowed them not to eat meat offered to an idol, knowing that as they became more and more instructed in the way of the Lord, that old false belief would fall away like a scab off of a healed sore. And uh, that's actually a fairly good metaphor, because sometimes the doctrines that we thought were so important and were so true, and we find out aren't, they just fall away. And you don't even remember that you believe that. Sometimes. Somebody will bring it up, yeah, you used to think this. No, I didn't think that. Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, he did. (laughs) So, that was our review. Kind of quickly through the first eight verses. So, we ended there on December 18th, and now we'll talk about verse 9. So, now Paul, I can imagine him, if he were there, he would look over his glasses. But take care. See, my dad didn't have... Yeah, he did have glasses. Maybe i remember. He did, and occasionally... Yeah, I remember that now. He would look over his glasses, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak A stumbling block. any of you ever tripped over something on the ice and down you go and and it hurts a lot? When our brothers trip over us, it hurts even more because there's, there's the love that should have been there and the care and the concern that caused the lack of which caused the stumble that that brother took. If my freedom becomes a snare to a weaker Christian brother, then I have brought sin into his life. Just because I can do something does not mean I should force it on someone else. A simple example of this is is this. Understanding. If I invite someone to dinner and I know they dislike meat, I'm going to bring out the elk steak, followed by a second course of hamburger, followed by pork chops, and then we'll have bacon. What's for dessert? Chocolate covered bacon. That would be incredibly stupid and evil on my part. What I wrote here is a simple example of this is the understanding that if I invite someone to dinner and I know that they dislike meat, we're going to be vegetarians for the night. And that's just how it's going to be. Um, Why would I try to force such an unimportant ideal on someone to the detriment of their soul? This would not evidence Christian love, but rather simple arrogance and a my way or the highway attitude. And what is it hurting me to just bring out the salad? I can be a rabbit for a night. Bring it on, Thousand Island croutons. Maybe they don't, you know. So, but the point is, know one another, Robert. um, If I know they don't drink alcohol, I'm not sure. Because I don't do that, so I don't drink alcohol. So, sure, I suspect that you'd want to be talking to them about it. It's don't. It's not a secret. If, if, if you are, if, if this Christian is, a, is it occasionally has alcohol and this other one doesn't and they get together for the day, it could be a topic of conversation, might be an, an obvious good talk, topic of conversation, but enough care that you don't stumble them. Now, how do we know when we stumbled someone? You know, it's generally internal. It's they don't generally go, oh, I just tripped over that doctrine, you know, so I, I'm not totally sure I understand your question. To me, it's it's simple. If I know they, if I was a drinker, and I knew they weren't, it just wouldn't be on the table if I had them over. I, and as Paul says later on, he says, "If if if um if alcohol will cause my brother to stumble, I'll never take a drink again." So, what did you do in that situation? Oh, <laughs> right. How important is your witness to the unbelievers? We're talking about believers. But, but Paul, that last verse just kind of ties it up. If, if food will cause my witness to be compromised, I will never eat meat again. I have the liberty to eat it, and maybe I'll have to wait until I'm way away from those people. But how important is my witness to them? And how important is another state? I, I, a lot. I, I can't give you a uh you know it's not like measuring decibels well care 0.75 ounces of care per ounce of body weight of the person i you know i i, I just a lot of care so much care that my witness my witness to a non-believer is not compromised and my love to a, a weaker brother is shown in not causing him to stumble so i go the extra extra mile i guess is what i'm saying as Paul says here, if 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 my drinking will cause this person to stumble, I'll never drink again. It's really not that important in the great scheme of things. Now, eating, you eventually have to eat. So you'll notice he doesn't say, if if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat again. No, he says, I'll never eat the thing that causes him to stumble again. So whatever it is that's causing the stumbling, are we willing to give it up? we have the liberty to take it we have the liberty to imbibe it there's no doubt about that and it's not going to harm us but if it will cause a stumbling it'd have to be a matter of conscience and it'd have to be a matter of the of the interrelationship you have with that person They're all everybody's going to be different thomas and that's why i said you should talk to them because what it does two things it provides a platform for you to talk because it's clear to them you're not forcing anything on them they're going to be fought. I'm far more open to people who aren't forcing something on me who I actually have questions about something and they're willing to talk with me about it, but they're not saying, well, this is how it is. And if you don't do this, the wheels will come off of your life, you know. So the care involves what Thomas said as well, the willingness to engage. So it's a teaching opportunity. It's an example opportunity and it's a teaching opportunity. But the way is paved by how you treat them. I wish it, you know, if we were all logical autom- autom- automatons, robots, that operated on simple, pure logic, we wouldn't have to do that. But that's not how it is. The perception of someone who cares for you gives, in your mind, will give you, they'll, you'll give them a platform to help you learn. Whereas someone who's going to push something on you because you're just too dumb to know it's not good enough for you, you're just too dumb to know it won't hurt you, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? Right, right. There is a distinction. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right, that's what Paul is saying, and I know wine is not going to cause a problem. I'm, I'm substituting the word. But if it will cause my brother to stumble, then I'll never drink again. Same thing. What Jim is talking about is a gotcha. Yeah. No. And Paul is pointing out to these arrogant, mature Christians who knew that what they were doing was causing a weaker brother to stumble. Don't do it. He's not talking about what Jim pointed out earlier. Someone who is a is the conscience of the the church. Yet. Everyone has a right to my opinion. That kind of guy, and we know them all. We know them. I mean, I struggled with it for years until I discovered that most of my opinions were wrong. And uh, so it, it's, but it is, it is an issue of interpersonal relationship with the person because everybody's different. And if you find out that they're doing what Jim's talking about, you can just look them right straight in the eye and say, you know, I have liberty in Christ. Why don't you? Why aren't you resting? In and can we talk about this? Can we walk through this? Can we work through this? Because they obviously don't. They obviously don't if they're trapped by stuff like that. Uh, oh boy, you could, then we get the list on the, on the refrigerator. Yes. If I knowingly participate in creating a desire in you to do something that would cause your conscience harm, then I've sinned. But if it was foolish, or if it was, if it was er- any ignorance on my part, no. It has to be a knowing thing. He's talking about Christians who knew what they were doing. They knew they were causing a weaker brother to stumble. They brought you over for dinner and you don't drink and they stuck a they put wine on every every place and, and put the bottle in the middle of the table and an empty glass by you. An empty wine glass. Aren't there wine there's wine glasses. Yeah. Wine glass by you. That's what I'm talking about. They're in could In this particular case, it's talking about you can't drink, let me, let me, let me further help me here with this uh, metaphor. You can't drink the water in this town. You have to drink what, you have to drink something that has a little bit of something in it. But you have found out a way home to drink what you can that won't poison you. So you go to this place and and you've got to drink, you want to drink, but that's the only thing to drink. He didn't give you an opportunity to drink something else. It's, it's a forcing on you. It's an arrogant requiring of you To acknowledge there's nothing behind that idol, I'm telling you. Get a light, figure it out now. So you've got to get you've got to be where I am theologically in order to associate with me. No. Yes. Yes. Or could have no other choice. Yeah, could have no other choice. Maybe in your mind there's no other choice. It's it's When we get through the next section here, I think it might become a little more clear. Anybody else want to talk about verse 9 there? Help on it? Verse 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Now, it is clear from this verse that eating food sacrificed to idols It mentioned in verse 4 is a reference to the practice of going to the temple of the idol and partaking in the meat there. It wasn't as simple as going to market and buying meat that might have been offered to an idol. It was a particular social custom of going to the temple and eating the meat there. And it was all tied up by the pagans in the worship of that idol. The stronger Christians felt that they could go to these temples and eat the meat because they knew the idol was nothing. The weaker Christian walking by may see the stronger Christian there in an idol's temple eating meat. He may also remember a conversation he had with the com- with stronger Christian in which he was chided for not recognizing that these idols were nothing. Remembering the conversation, seeing the stronger Christian in the idol's temple, enjoying a meal, but still having that weak conscience, the weaker Christian may decide to go into the temple and meet- eat the meat against his conscience. And that's the enticing that Paul is talking about. And it's the having them over for dinner... They're not meat eaters, and you put meat on their plate. It's it's that that's not a very that's not a great analogy, but it's an analogy. Um, sure, right. What? No, this is talking about older Christians who knew that this entire pastime of going into the idols' temple and eating the meat was associated with worshiping the idol, and there were weaker Christians in their body that they knew. They knew of that they could be stumbling. Now you can carry this to an extreme and just stay in your house, stay in your house, don't eat meat, don't drink, just cower in a corner, and and read the Bible. So it takes wisdom to understand, but most of that wisdom is interacting with each other, finding out where we are, what offends you, how can I not offend you when it happens? I saw you in the idol the temple eating. Oh, you did. Um, Tell me tell me what you what happened. How did that affect you? Did you realize that I, I didn't know that it affected you that way? I'm very sorry. You can start a conversation, you can begin an education, you can begin a, a biblical education for this person. But the point is, I'm not talking about us as as mature Christians being trapped by other people's predilections. Just when they come up, be wise. Don't intentionally cause them to stumble. But look at it as an opportunity to come alongside, to love, to encourage, and to build them up in the Word of God, uh, and that can be very educational for both people. Especially if, if, like myself, if you tend to be a little bit arrogant. So, remember in the conversation. So, so the weaker Christian may decide to go into the temple and eat meat against his conscience. That would be disastrous. We should never cause someone to violate their conscience. Cause, not if, not accidentally. But cause, okay. Rather in love, we should teach and instruct, and bring people along so that they may, by their own volition, begin to choose to do something that is truly neutral in the eyes of God, such as eating meat. But that can take time. It can take uh, effort. It can take. Uh, it can be frustrating. And and I, I read about some of these missionaries who would convert people in some of these witchcraft-infested areas, and it took years for them to stop doing. Things behind the missionaries' back, using the poles and the totems and the and the the um uh spells and things. They were they were probably believers, but they were just still caught, caught by the the false theology. And in, in a wise teacher would come alongside and begin to instruct them in the ways of the Lord, showing them how this is not a good thing, this is not what God wants. And showing them from scripture, building them up, bringing them along at a pace that they can, that they can maintain, if you will. Not just saying, throw that stuff away. I'm going to burn your stuff and I'm going to, when the, when the silver, the issue that Paul was talking about there in Acts, it's in another place and I don't remember exactly. It's not too far from there. A whole bunch of people brought there in by voluntarily. Brought their silver and their spells and their books and they brought it to the town square and they burn it right there. Remember that in Acts? But they did it on their own because of the teaching of the scripture. Anything else on verse 10? If someone sees you who has, who have, you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple. So then Paul says this, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose Christ's sake, for whose sake Christ died. When our Christian liberty improperly applied causes someone with a weaker conscience to sin, attempting to mimic that liberty before they can do it in good conscience, we can participate in their spiritual ruination. This is not to say that they will lose their salvation, which cannot happen, but rather that we will stunt them. Leon Morris comments this way. He says, Paul is speaking of a present activity. The present tense, the tense is present, not future. It is not the man's eternal perdition, but the stunting of his Christian life and his use, usefulness. The Lord Jesus Christ died to redeem this weaker brother and to give him new life. If you, by your arrogance, again, we're talking about arrogance, a knowing attempt to cause this problem, and an insistence that he follow your conscience, you have taken part in ruining his spiritual life. And, as Jim has pointed out, if he's got a weaker conscience, and he's trying to force you to follow his conscience, he's doing the same thing. And you can call him out in love. Think about that. Is that an oxymoron? No, it can be done. So for through your knowledge, he was weak is ruined, the brother for whose Christ whose sake Christ died. Any comments about that? We're going to finish up with verse, um, you know, the, the chapter ends at verse 13. So we're going to try and make it all the way through. And so, in verse 12, Paul says, By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. When the Corinthians used their knowledge and their freedom to do things that clearly tripped up weaker Christians, Paul says they actually sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ. We we can't quite get a handle on this because I don't think there's anybody in here who would do this intentionally. You wouldn't say, watch what happens when that guy sees me me. You wouldn't do that. But that's kind of what this is talking about. Or, I don't care what a younger brother thinks. I just don't care. One of those two things. That's the attitude that Paul's talking about. Not this interaction we have every day where you may accidentally cause a stumbling. That's not what he's talking about. These were guys who were making their brothers stumble. I, I, can, can you, that has to be a, it, it was a Corinthian thing I think, and it can be in the church today. When the Corinthians use their knowledge and their freedom to do things that clearly tripped up weaker Christians, Paul says they actually sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very serious thing. It is one thing to make a mistake. It is another to knowingly do something that all you know is it's not interdicted by Scripture. It can cause your brother to stumble. It's just as bad as if you violated a commandment. Now, this does not mean that our lives must be constrained by the weak consciences of everyone around us. As we spend time with those who are possibly less instructed and therefore less sure of themselves in certain areas, we can defer to them as we teach and encourage and admonish. Otherwise, though, our liberty frees us to do things that we know are not prohibited by Scripture. You have a liberty in Christ to do many things that younger, more immature Christians won't understand. Don't flaunt them in front of those young Christians. That's what Paul's saying. It's the flaunting, not the accidental, not the wondering where the line is. It's the flaunting. Therefore, Paul says, and this is the amount of care but I think Paul wants us to exercise when we know it will cause a younger brother to stumble. He says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. So that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That's a harsh that's a that's a pretty hyperbolic statement. I'll never eat meat again. Do you think he really meant that? It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. My guess is that he really meant it. I'm not guessing. It's in Scripture. It's a statement of fact from the Apostle Paul. If my if food causes my brother to stumble, meat, I will never eat meat again. That I will not cause my brother to stumble. So finally, Paul says that if my eating of meat, especially in the temple, following this custom and having them see me do it, I will never eat it again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. The word stumble is from the Greek skandalon and refers to the tripping device in a in a trap. That was used to catch animals, um, and so that's kind of a picture. So this is not to say, though, as mentioned before, that stronger Christians must be controlled by the weaker Christians of their brothers. This is to say that if I do something which I knowingly ca- in which I knowingly cause a weaker Christian to stumble, it is a sin. It is not a sin for me to live in the liberty that Christ is giving me, even if a weaker Christian does not have that liberty. Yet if I am not doing it in order to cause him to stumble. That's the important thing. I'm not doing it in order to cause him to stumble. Weaker, less mature Christians are to be taught so that they can learn to expand themselves into the freedom that Christ has brought. One commentator put it this way. As a final note to this chapter, it should be understood that Paul did not say that a knowledgeable Christian must abandon his freedom in order to the ignorant prejudice of a spiritual bigot. I think that's what Jim was talking about. The weak brother was one who followed the example of another Christian, not one who carped and coerced that knowledgeable Christian into a particular behavior pattern. Also, it was unlikely that Paul saw this weak brother as permanently shackling the freedom of the knowledgeable Christian. The weak brother was no omnipresent phantom, but an individual who was to be taught so that he could learn to enjoy his freedom in Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And that, brothers and sisters, as they say, it's one of our responsibilities to bring younger, weaker Christians along so that they can enjoy the liberty they have in Christ. So they can see, they can rest. The Hebrews chapter 6, rest. I don't have to do stuff. I don't have to keep lists. I don't have to mark this off. Ben Franklin said it one time. I don't even know if he was a Christian, but he talked about when he was checking off the list of all of the character qualities he was trying to strengthen. And when he got to humility, yeah, I was really humble to him i think i just blew that well not as extensive as the treatment paul gave it in the book of galatians this chapter extols the liberty of redeemed christians while at the same time encouraging restraint and constraint when that knowledgeable mature christian realizes realizes that his liberty may actually cause a weaker brother to sin it's important to remember for us to remember that sometimes just because we take something for granted as a scriptural freedom that does not mean every brother in christ does the same Once we become aware, once we become aware that our actions may actually cause them pains of conscience, it would be best for us to cease that activity in their presence and begin a passive and active program of educating and teaching that younger brother. It then becomes incumbent upon us to do what we can to build them up biblically so they too can enjoy the freedom that Christ has delivered to us. Now, while I'm not necessarily a proponent of formal checklists, Sometimes it can be useful. And so I'll leave you with this. John MacArthur has provided such a checklist. Questionable things. In deciding whether or not to participate in any behavior that is doubtful, the following principles make a good checklist to follow. Number one, excess. Is the activity or habit necessary? Or is it merely an extra that is not really important? Is it perhaps only an encumbrance which we should willful, willingly give up? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Number two, expediency. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are profitable or expedient. Is what I want to do helpful and useful or only desirable? Number three, emulation. The one who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk in the same manner as he walked. First John 2.6. If we are doing what Christ would do, our action not only is, it, is permissible, but good and right. Number four, example. Are we setting the right example for others, especially for weaker brothers and sisters? If we emulate Christ, others will be able to emulate us to follow our example. 1 Timothy 4.12. Number five, evangelism. Is my testimony going to be helped or hindered? Will unbelievers be drawn to Christ or turned away from him by what I am doing? Will it help me to conduct myself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity? Colossians four five. Number six, edification. Is my testimony going to be helped, excuse me, edification? Will I be built up and matured in Christ? Will I become spiritually stronger? Number 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And last, exaltation. Will the Lord be lifted up and glorified in what I do? God's glory and exaltation should be the supreme purpose behind everything we do. Whether then, the scripture says, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all. To the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. And so. A difficult and trying chapter. With a lot of. Information. And encouragement for us. To be something to weaker Christians. That we need to be. Without. Having our freedom. Constrained. So just remember. Unless you live with that weaker brother. Which it could be. There may be times in your life when you're going to have to restrain and constrain yourself in order to bring a younger brother along, to provide the platform where you can teach them so that they can begin to enjoy the liberty that Christ has given them. And don't you want to see people enjoy that liberty, enjoy that freedom, enjoy that blessing that, that uh, Christ has given every believer in him? If we want that for them, we want to be able to be in a position to help them attain it. And arrogance will never do that. And that is what these arrogant Christians in Corinth were doing. They were not building up, bringing along, teaching, encouraging, exampling, edifying, uh, emulating. They were ignoring. They were harming. They were not caring. And isn't that what the body of Christ is about? It's about caring for one another. It's about knowing what one, knowing each other as much as we can. You can't know everyone. I've been married to this woman for 40 years, and she still surprises me. In a good way, but she still surprises me. But knowing as much as you can so that you can be to them someone who they can emulate, they can follow, that they see you edifying, and they see you exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, some of these things are are going to come right into the heart of each one of us as you, by your Holy Spirit, take your word. And make it happen in our lives. And we are so grateful that you will do that. That, that our, our lives can become an expression of the Lord Jesus Christ by your grace, by your strength, and not by our own works. Because we would not know where to stop and know where to start and know how to. Uh, we can have the right doctrine, but you give us your Holy Spirit so that we can be to these weaker, younger brothers, an example, someone who can be emulated, We can we can uh, edify and we can build up the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to do that today. And Lord, if there's any confusion here, I pray that you'd help me to be able to um, bring more information and help through the scripture that people might see that our liberty in Christ is something to be desired and delighted in, but it is also something to be careful about. And so that if I see that my liberty will cause a weaker brother to stumble, then whatever I'm doing there, I'll stop doing it until I can bring him along. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.